Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, We're so glad you're here with us. If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Luke. We're going to jump back in. If you are new, we want to welcome you. Uh, There is a Connect card in the front of your seat, unless you're in one of these front seats. It should be on your seat. No, nothing. But you're not new. So it's not for you. So if you're new, talk to someone back there and get a card and let us know who you are. Um, and we will come over for dinner unannounced at some point. It will be awesome. Um, we, uh, we have been, for about a year now, uh, slowly making our way through the book of Luke. We took a break over the summer, or the latter part of the summer, and uh, for the last three weeks. And so we want to kind of pick up right where we left off. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6. And um, I, I want to, I, before we get to the text we're going to look at, I just want to remind us a bit of, of where we are This is something uh, called the Sermon on the Plain. It is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's kind of Jesus' most famous teaching. And very often we approach uh, a teaching like this as if it were just a bunch of kind of disconnected devotional nuggets. So here Jesus is talking about this, and then he changes gears. He's talking about this over here. And and, and it's like he just kind of had, he only spoke in paragraphs, you know? And, um, and, And one of the things that, that I want to show is just how the whole thing sort of connects because the teaching of Jesus as it's recorded isn't just kind of randomly put together. There's something else going on with it. So I want to read a passage we looked at over the summer, verse 27 of Luke 6. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those for whom you expect, or to whom, let me try that again. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to repay it in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be what? Children of the Most High... Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. That sentence, be merciful just as your father is merciful, is the point of the teaching. That sentence. In Leviticus, it's be holy just as God is holy. And to that, Jesus adds, be merciful as your father is merciful. So, all Jesus is doing in talking about slapping cheeks and, and, and blessing those who hate you and all of those sorts of things, that's all giving tangible illustration to what it looks like to be merciful as God is merciful. That's, what he's, that's his point. If you're going to live as children of your father, then look like your father. Your father loves indiscriminately, so you love indiscriminately. Your father shows grace without expecting to receive anything back. You show grace without expecting anything back. Now, he's speaking into a culture that was dominated by a relationship called patron-client relationships or, or benefactors or uh, another way to say it is reciprocal relationships. In the first century, how it worked, and it works a little bit like this today, but if somebody does something for you, it, you are put in their debt. 
And you owe them something back. If they invite you to a banquet, you owe them a banquet invite back. If today, if someone sends you a Christmas card and they're not, and you're not, they're not on your list, what do you do? You send them a Christmas card. If someone gets you a gift and you had not gotten them a gift at Christmas time, don't you feel like, oh, I need to repay? Someone invites you over, you need to invite them over. It's but to but but to the the ears uh, of the first century. I mean, this was embedded in every social relationship. Particularly if you were wealthy, you would do all kinds of nice things for people, and all those people would owe you favors. So Jesus is doing something radical here. He is dismantling. This whole system and saying, listen, how about you do good things for those who can't repay you? How about that? How about even for people that don't like you? How about that? Why? Because that's what God's like. If you're going to call God Abba, Father, and you're going to claim your status as his child, then this is what his children look like. Children look like their parents. So into that conversation, Jesus introduces this, verse 37. I just want you to see he's not talking about something different all of a sudden. Now, this could be one of the most quoted out of context verses in the history of the world. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Okay. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they both not fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the two-by-four in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the two-by-four in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, a couple of immediate things. First of all, it's very easy to yank this whole thing out of context. And anytime anyone makes, one makes, wants to make a moral judgment about how you're living, hey, do not judge, lest you be judged, right? I mean, that's kind of the most quoted verse uh, these days. And then, and then you have this random blind leading the blind into pits, and then you've got sawdust and beams, and what in the world? It seems like he's just kind of meandering around this Jesus, making a bunch of random points. But what he's doing is, is absolutely brilliant. He's taking this idea, you are to be like your father, and he's now saying it negatively. You're to be like your father, except in this one thing. Do not judge. Why? Because it will cut off the flow of mercy. If you're going to live indiscriminately, you don't judge. Now, immediately we have to say this. There are two kinds of judgment. The word here is crino. Say crino. Crino. There are two kinds. There's a good kind and there's a bad kind. Right? Because Jesus judges. He'll call Pharisees all kinds of things. Right? So he's... so. And the, and the Bible even commands at times for the church to judge each other. And so, there, and this is where all the confusion comes in. This word is used in two different ways. There is a good judgment that is commended in the Bible, and there is a bad judgment that is condemned. This kind of judgment, the bad judgment, notice, Jesus says it this way. He says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not, what? Condemn, and you will not be condemned. So, He's talking about the judgment that leads to condemnation. Think of it this way. The word crino means to separate. 
The good kind of judgment means we're separating or distinguishing things, behaviors. Hey, that's a good way to live. That's not a good way to live. That's a good thing to say. That's not a good thing to say. The bad kind of judgment separates people. The good people or the bad people. Those that are for me, those that are against me. Those that are godly and those that are beyond redemption. What Jesus is condemning is the step from observing your behavior to making a judgment about your motives, your heart, your identity, or your worth. And don't we do that all the time? Or is it just me? Because I do this thing called people watching. Airports, Disneyland, the Orange County Fair. And I find that it's just so easy to observe someone's external behavior and then make all kinds of verdicts, assumptions, and draw conclusions about who they are, what they've done, and what they're like way beyond any knowledge I have of that person. Is that just me? Because it seems, I mean, so the good, the good judgment that we're, and by the way, we're going to look at this all next week, okay, the good judgment. Because for those of us that are like under 40, like myself, there is... There, there is scriptural teaching where in the community of faith, we are walking together and pointing out two by fours in each other's eyes. There is accountability. There is the recognition. Paul says this incredibly in 1 Corinthians. He says, who am I to judge those outside the church? I judge those inside. There is something where we help each other discern good, bad, right, wrong, Light, darkness, truth, falsehood. And that wars against the idol of our individualism that says nobody has any right to tell me what to do. We're going to talk about that good one next week. Today we just want to sit in the bad one. The judgment that goes, this is what I see, to this is who you are. Now what Jesus does here, it's so interesting. He says, do not judge or you will be judged. He connects whatever measure you use, that's going to be used on you. And he says this all over the place. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 about a servant that was shown mercy who refused to show mercy to others. Well, that boomerangs around. Loving God and loving neighbor, it's the two sides of the same coin. You can't can't just judge neighbor and not be judged. I mean, it just, it doesn't work that way. Loving, Loving neighbor is one of the ways that you love God. And so what Jesus here is condemning is the kind of condemning judgment that separates people. I'm good, you're bad. I'm godly, you're not godly. I'm worthy of salvation, you're not worthy of salvation. That's what he's condemning. And then he gets into this whole, can the blind lead the blind? In other words, if you're, follow, if you're following people, we all follow somebody, if you're following people that don't get this, you'll just end up being like them. So instead, he says, Assume that your sin is a two by four and everyone else's sin is just a speck of sawdust. Now, let me ask you, how easy is that to reverse? I assume my sin is, oh, these are tiny. I'm in process. But you, oh my goodness, that's a two. I I see so many two by fours right now, it's ridiculous. And Jesus is saying that kind of hypocrisy blinds you So you're a blind guide leading others into blindness. But moreover, it cuts off the mercy that is to characterize children of the Father because you cannot show mercy the way the Father does 
if there is a constant narrative that is evaluating, drawing conclusions, comparing, contrasting, and rendering verdicts on people, if that's all that's going on in your head, it cuts off the flow of mercy. Are you with me so far? Now, how did we end up here? Go to Genesis chapter 2. I want to try to make some sense out of this, and I'm sorry this is so theoretical. I'm sorry it's not immediately relevant. I apologize sarcastically because it just hits us right where we live. Genesis chapter 2. Let's go to verse 8. Now, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, some of these stories raise a lot of questions. I totally get that. We don't have time to look at them. So just let me draw points from them and then we'll, you'll see kind of what I, what I want to do with them. But I want to talk about this ancient account, of how it is that we came to be. Verse 8. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life. So that's one tree. And then there's another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you've been around like church or religion, you've heard this story. But I find it interesting. Why is the tree called that? The knowledge of good and evil. Why isn't it just the knowledge of evil? Why is it the knowledge of good and evil? What does that tree represent? Because, and we're not going to read it, the, the first humans were given permission to eat of any tree in the garden except from that one. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it, that becomes the focus of the next conversation, Genesis 3, that tree. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, there's a serpent in the story. Now, the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, 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 the woman says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle, and you must not touch it. Now, he never said anything about not touching it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. Now that's interesting. There's all kinds of debate about what in the world is going on in that story. Some people think, what, what kind of knowledge was this? Some people think it was knowledge about culture. Some think it was knowledge about sexuality. There are all kinds of guesses. But I was reading several commentators that made the following argument. That when we ate from the, tr- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what that was, was our grasping for something that only belonged to God. Namely, the ability to determine what was good and evil. In other words, our propensity to judge, condemn, render verdicts was a result of eating from this tree. Now, I don't know if that's right. Lots of guesses about what that means. But play with me for a second. What, what, it, what is the first thing that happens after they eat of this tree? Do they die? Nope. They realize they're naked. And they realize that in this new world, naked is bad. 
That's a judgment. Then, when God confronts them, Adam says, you're right, I totally messed up, it's all on me. No! He says, that woman you gave me, she ain't. Judges the woman. Could, could it be, these commentators would suggest, that we are to be children of the Father in all respects except this one thing? And that, in the garden, the picture given is that you and I were to find meaning, worth, significance, satisfaction, real life from our relationship with this God, this Creator. But when we grasp for that which was only God's alone, we got cut off from all that life and all that identity and significance. And so now, instead of overflowing with life and worth, And sharing that with other people, we are actually trying to suck life from other people in our environment all the time. Why? Because we're cut off from the source of all life. And so instead what we do, instead of feeding ourselves with the richness of God's character, His glory, His word, His worship, whatever, now what we do is we're constantly rendering verdicts on each other and those verdicts are designed to make us look good in our own eyes. In other words, we use each other to get life from each other. Man, at least I'm not like that person. Well, what, am I, what have I just done there? I've elevated me at the expense of another. Right? That's all I've done. And I do it subconsciously all the time. And so what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at some other biblical teaching about how this works and why it's such cancer in God's people. Because I don't know about you, this is something that comes so naturally. It's like I'm constantly eating of that tree, placing myself in the middle of that garden, evaluating people as good or evil. And when Jesus speaks a word about mercy, be merciful like your Father is merciful, what's the thing that's going to hinder that more than anything else? The judgment that you're not worthy of mercy. Are you with me? That's a subtle, somber yes. I'll assume it's perhaps, because there's some relevance beyond my life. Go to Romans chapter 2. I want to show you four passages where this kind of negative judgment, and again, positives next week, we are called to discern good, bad. We are called to discern light, dark. We are called to discern certain actions, habits, attitudes, whatever. Yes, yes, yes. But only after we've resisted the temptation to move from those observations into judgments about character, worth, identity, significance. Because it's not just that we judge, but we judge in order to feel alive, to feel better. We're, instead of overflowing with worth and value to others, we're constantly comparing and measuring. There's a prosecuting attorney, and we're either doing better or we're falling short of every single person we come into contact with. And Jesus wants to set us free from that. Because to live that way is to cut yourself off from God's mercy, but also from embodying that mercy to others. So Romans chapter 2, this is a community of Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And there was a bit of tension between both groups. And so Paul in Romans chapter 1 does this magnificent deconstruction of non-Jewish culture and how pagan and how awful they are. 
And you can imagine when this letter is being read in a small little house church, all of the Jewish Christians are going, that's right. Preach it, Paul. So the right hook that comes in chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance? In other words, hey, Jews and non-Jews. I mean, how quiet do you think it got in that, when that part was read, right? Because what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that every judgment exposes a double standard. Think about all of the double standards I have. I almost wanted to drive to church today in a Porsche just to see what people would do. Random thought, sorry. Think about, all the, think about all the judgments I have. All right, here are the double standards I have. I judge myself by my intention. I judge others by their action. So when my wife and I disagree, which happens never, but if it were, when my wife and I disagree, my defense against her being hurt by something is I didn't mean it. I didn't intend to hurt you. That wasn't in my heart. So I'm judging myself by what I intended in here. When she, which has never happened, does something to hurt me, I judge her by what she did. I don't care what you meant. This is how it felt. Ooh. Is that a double standard? You bet. Double standard number one for Mike. Double standard number two, I reverse the log and spec thing. I think all my sins are specs, and I think yours are two by fours. Right? So gluttony, not a big deal. Not a big deal. Body's a temple, yeah, in a metaphorical way. Right? But you... I mean, isn't it just funny that the sins we're most condemning of others aren't the ones that we struggle with? Right? And we do this as a whole church. How many verses are on justice and poverty in the American church versus how many justice are on certain sexual sins? You know, you just go, okay. Every judgment I make, there's a double standard. I reverse the log and the speck thing. I think you're the worst sinner. I'm okay. Third double standard. I'm in process. I'm on a journey. You should have your act together because you've been following Jesus a long time. (laughs) Is anybody else with me on any of these things? Yes. And do you see how this kills mercy? Absolutely. Now we're, again, we're going to talk about those times when you have to confront, those times when someone is harming, yes, 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 
But in these moments, the, those times are the exceptions. The rule is the nonstop narrative of evaluation going on in our heads all the time. And it quenches mercy. Why? Because we're constantly separating. That's crino. We're constantly separating the worthy, the unworthy, the good, the bad. The parents whose child cries on the airplane. <sighs> My kid's never done that. Couple, couple more. Go to Romans 14. So the community was arguing about all kinds of stuff. Community was arguing about, okay, is, is one day better than another day? Or are all days the same? The Jews said, no, no, there's a Sabbath day. That's the sacred day. The non-Jews were going, come on, man, we're all in Jesus now. And Paul gets into this really beautiful argument, but notice he kind of summarizes this section of it in verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as long as I live, or as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will have to give an account of ourselves to God. How is it that guilty people get to judge other guilty people. I am not a fan of American Idol. My wife, back in the day, was a fan of American Idol. Now, and she loved that, that part of the show when they're trying out, all the people are trying out, and some of them are horrible. And, and I, I found myself in this curious place where... Everybody who I thought sang well, the judges hated. And everybody that the judges hated, I thought sang well. So, did I reverse it? Don't judge me. Don't judge me right now. All right, let me say that again. So I would hear somebody sing and think they were awesome and the judges would say they were horrible and then I'd hear somebody who I thought, oh, those, that's horrible. Judges would say, those guys are great. So, right? Did I say it right? Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. So, I could either assume that something was wrong with all of them or that something was wrong with me. What I soon came to believe is that I am the worst judge of musical talent because I have none. Okay? Now, in a small but similar way, you, as a sinner, don't get to serve as jury for other sinners. Right? We're all guilty. But we're all guilty in different ways. Hence the temptation to judge. And so Paul just simply says, hey, by the way, all this that's going on between you guys, you all have to give account. So why not show mercy instead? Go if you would to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is in a sustained argument about his apostleship here. Notice what he says. So all we're doing is we're just trying to expose all of the ways you and I still reach for that fruit. Right? And we just want to say, yes, there is a time and a place for separating 
of things, separating of media, separating of, of, of statements, separating of, of ways of living, yes. But that's only after we've resisted the temptation to go from what you see to now what you assume to be true. Where we're not talking about behavior anymore, we're talking about identity or person or worth. See, the only verdict we get to render towards each other is the verdict that was given on the cross. You were worth dying for, evidently. Even as a sinner. That God shows his great love for you and me in this. That's the verdict. We're all guilty, we're all loved, and we're all invited. Here you go. That's what we got in common. Paul says this. Verse 3, about his apostleship. He says, I I, I care very little if I am judged by you or by some human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, and then notice the statement, but that does not make me innocent. Even my own guilt meter isn't always a reliable guide. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge this negative judgment, nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Now see, when I'm going from your behavior to your identity, I'm making all kinds of assumptions about the motives of your heart. Paul just simply says, listen, there's going to come a point in human history where we will all know what was real. Not what you were pretending, not how you were acting, but what was real. But until then, none of us know what's real when it comes to somebody else. I remember hearing a story about a a dad who was taking, it was either a flight or a bus, and he had two, two little kids with him. And the dad was just staring out the window while the two little kids were going berserk. Running up and down and yelling and screaming and fighting and whatever. And, and you know, you can imagine that all of the folks kind of looking at this dad as he's absently looking out the window. So a lady came up and said, sir, are you going to do something about your kids? And he looks back and he says, I'm so sorry. We just lost their mother, and I'm, I'm, I'm just out of it. Okay. Does that change the judgment? Absolutely. Does that provoke mercy? So what if we all went around assuming that about each other? Just the benefit of the doubt was automatically given to you that your life is a lot more complicated than how you're coming across right now. That there is pain and hurt and disappointment in your background that you're still working out. What if we, as a community, just lived that way with each other? Would that change the way that we live with each other? Of course it would. Of course it would. One last one. I know, it's so awesome. James. Seriously. I, I, I went last week and looked in Luke and went, Really? Go to James 4. Verse 11. I'll say in the same thing. There's a place for discernment. We're going to talk about that next week. But for now, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. 
When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but, since, but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one capital lawgiver and one capital J judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. In other words, not you. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, anytime we go from that external thing to be judgments about each other, we're claiming that fruit. We're stepping into the middle of the garden and taking the prerogative that's God's alone. So what would it be like if a whole community decided that they were going to argue over who was the worst sinner and they all pointed at themselves? I mean, what would, it, what would it be like if a whole community was fully convinced in their own mind that each of them was the world's worst sinner and everyone they came into contact with was a better person than them? What would that be like? I mean, this is what Paul does. Now, I don't have it up on the screen, but there, there, I was thinking of this passage last night. It just was blowing me away. First Timothy. Paul says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now this is the Apostle Paul. This is the dude that writes a third of the New Testament or two-thirds or whatever it is. This is the dude that like, we're still talking about. And this is the guy in a letter to the Philippian church who said, hey, by the way, if you want to do the whole like who kept the law better, I win. This is the guy who was bragging about his Jewish credentials, right? I was born, in the, I was born uh, a, a Jew. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept the law so I was considered faultless. But then this guy meets Jesus. And now he's convinced. Oh yeah, you know what? I'm the very worst of sinners. See, I don't know your motives or your heart, but I know mine. So Jesus says there is a place where we deal with specks in each other's eyes, but it's only after you live in the humility of believing that you are the very worst of sinners. Does that change the way we talk to each other? Does that change the way we'd be with each other? Absolutely. So, my name is Mike. I am the chief of sinners. Absolutely. I don't know your heart, don't know your story, don't know your motives, but I know mine. And it is only by the grace of Jesus of Nazareth that I get to stand before you in this way. Imagine if we all really believed it and we all really lived it. We'd change the world. It is impossible to overflow with God's extravagant love if we are holding ourselves as superior, rendering verdicts, and living in the way that is just so natural. So it is perfectly fitting this morning that we would now turn to center on the Lord's table to take the bread and the cup. This is called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, the Eucharist. This is the verdict. This is it. We were sinners in need of a Savior. God provided a Savior in Jesus. Now we are new creations who are who are, did somebody talk in the middle of a sermon? Because that is awesome. Because it seems like this would be good news. You know what I mean? To say that you, as scummy as you are, whatever you did last night, yesterday, last week, last year, and whatever you're going to do, that no longer defines you. That no longer 
identifies who you are, that that actually turns out to be living in an old identity and not a new one. And the God of grace is now inviting you to put on the new. You have a, you're, you're part of a new family. The old family, that's not, that's not as defining of you as anymore. It's different now. And so the only verdict we get to render, how about this? Just today, walk around with this. I'm the worst sinner in the world, and the only judgment I'm going to pass on you is that you were worth dying for. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Just today, let's just try it today and see what happens. So close your eyes, if you would. If you have never said yes to Jesus, I beg you to say yes to Jesus. Not because he's interested in turning you into a religious person or he's lonely and looking for more worshipers, but because we believe that fundamentally he is the answer to the ache that has plagued humanity since the very beginning. He is the answer to the alienation, to the separation. He is the answer to all the ways in which we fall short. That God himself came to the rescue. If you are a disciple of Jesus, we're going to hand out trays of bits of bread and cups of juice. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you can let these go right by. There's, no one's going to be counting cups at the end of the row. But if you're a follower of Jesus, would you take this as if you were the worst sinner in the world? Would you take that as if grace, if you were hearing grace for the first time, would you take that as the reminder not only of who we are now, but who we're to render others to be. And so, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we come. And we ask you, mighty God, that you would speak, bring light where there is darkness, grace, and mercy where there is guilt and condemnation, and that you would do good work in us as we remember yet again what you've done. 